this deep into the playoffs, Pat, you really have to embrace roster depth. Whoever has the hot hand, you got to go with it. And if we got a super sub to jump in for, say, 17 or so minutes, uh, let's do it. I feel like Keith is kind of a change of pace back for us, right? Uh, it's not lightning and thunder or anything like that. It's just a, it's just a different style. Yes, yeah, this is the time of year Keith Keith comes in. He's engaged. He loves the playoffs. We get him, you know, get Keith primed for Stag Bowl analysis live on the air. And just so happens this year, a little extra something for Keith for the effort with uh, Randolph Macon. So far, that's for sure. I even made a drop for Keith McMillan. That is coming in this show. Very exciting. Keith, I mean, that's when you really made it, is when you get your own guest spot drop. That's right. Jim Catanzaro, Don Beebe, Turbo, and Keith McMillan have individualized drops on this show. The Four Horsemen, right there. <laughs> Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Coleman. You have a very forceful handshake, Mr. Coleman. And Greg Thomas. Thank you, Greg. That was interesting, too. There have been 50 seasons of Division Three football. We've covered it for 25, and we've had a podcast since 2007. It's this one, the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. The only podcast directly from the folks at D3Football.com. We are here every week all season because we live and breathe this stuff. I'm Patrick Coleman, the executive editor of D3Football.com. And I'm Greg Thomas. I write around the nation at D3Football.com. And Pat, what a quarterfinal Saturday. Four absolute bangers, one right after another. And we get to talk about all four and talk about our semifinalists. We do here in episode 347. This is season 17, episode 21. Yeah, we'll talk about Wartburg, thrilling last-minute win against UW-Whitewater. We will talk about North Central needing to cover an onside kick at the uh, final minute to run out the clock against UW-Lacrosse. We'll talk about Cortland and Alma going toe-to-toe, arm-to-arm, leg-to-leg, head-to-head for the first 30 minutes before Cortland pulled away. And then we'll talk about a game that comes down to a field goal with four seconds left. That's a pretty good quarterfinal round, if you ask me. Hard to get much better than that quarterfinal round that we just had. People have asked, I think, is that the best quarterfinal round ever? I don't know. I, I would have to really go back and dig into the quarterfinal rounds from recent history, but it's certainly one of the more memorable quarterfinal rounds that we've had in the last 10 or 15 years. I'd have to go do the math on that one. It's my understanding that there would be no math. Before we get any further into this podcast, we want to thank the sponsor of this podcast, and that is our friends at D3Photography.com. D3 Photography moved, not quite heaven and earth, but moved a photographer all the way around Lake Michigan to make sure we had all four national quarterfinals covered. You can see photos from all of those games that we just mentioned, your Alma Cortland, your Johns Hopkins Randolph-Macon, your UW Lacrosse North Central, your UW Whitewater Wartburg, and... All of them you can find on d3photography.com. And d3photography.com at all of our quarterfinals, capturing history for a couple of programs, capturing dramatic moments late in games in a couple of those games, and all of the exciting action from all four of those games. Pat, if you want to get stills from any of those games in one of the best quarterfinal rounds we've ever seen, you can certainly do so by ordering at d3photography.com. You can get 10% off of that order by using the coupon code D3Football. I've been asked to tease this, and I'm just going to read it verbatim. In our post-Stag Bowl show, there will be a single coupon code that will net one lucky winner 50% off of their order. One. One lucky winner. What uh, the D3Photo folks are suggesting is that you might want to build a shopping cart in advance so you can use that code. I am uh, very interested to see how many people do that. Now, if you want to get photos in time for holiday giving, then perhaps you may not want to wait until December 16th to have that information. But that's another thing you can do at d3photography.com here this season. So thanks to d3photography.com for sponsoring the d3football.com Around the Nation podcast. 
Game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. It's time for game balls. And my game ball goes to D'Angelo Hardy. So this counts as an offense, defense, and special teams game ball, right? Hardy is, of course, the senior wide receiver for North Central, and his day was literally unlike any other in North Central football history. This was already true in the first half, where Hardy caught a touchdown pass, threw a touchdown pass on an option play, and intercepted a pass on a Hail Mary at the end of the first half. He was the first North Central player to ever have caught a touchdown, thrown a touchdown, and intercepted a pass in the same game. Then you add the kickoff return for a touchdown in the closing minute, and you know, now it just gets into the sort of stuff that you'd have to call Stats Inc. for back in the day. Great day for Hardy, and we'll talk to him a little bit more about it later in our show. Pat, my game ball goes to Miles Bridges, Nehemiah Nixon, Chris Desmond, Colin Hagee, Matt Hale, Bryson Boyette, and Clay Phillips. Those are the offensive linemen that played for Randolph-Macon on Saturday. This group paved the way for not just a big individual day for Mitchell Johnson, which we'll hear more about later, but for any Randolph-Macon running back, the Yellow Jackets amass 255 yards on the ground in their win at Johns Hopkins with a 7.3 yards per rush average. Those are both season highs for opponents against Johns Hopkins. After a slow first quarter for the Yellow Jackets offense, the offensive line's physicality took over, leading to a 21-point second quarter. Great line play tends to be the differentiator between teams that reach the semifinals and teams that do not. And Randolph-Macon's offensive line has been great all year. They were great again on Saturday, and they get my game ball. It's very Keith McMillan of you to give your game ball to multiple people. I can tell you that our budget for mythical game balls used to be huge back in the day when he was co-hosting the podcast. A lot of co-game balls, I know, but I'm feeling feeling the Randolph-Macon love this week. They deserve it, and... uh, Nod to the OG, the originator, Keith McMillan. Multiple game balls for his alma mater doing some historical things this season in Ashland. No co-game balls. Actually, no Wartburg game balls in this segment either. But we will talk about Wartburg. Well, right now, Chris Winter, can we get some opening remarks about the Whitewater Wartburg game? All right. So first thing I got to say is, wow. Okay, wow. Wow. That was a game. That's a, that's a D3 football game right there. Sure was. This is a game that definitely lived up to the hype, Greg. Lived up to that three-point margin that was suggested as well. Yes, Pat. At Wartburg, Wisconsin-Whitewater delivered some big shots early, but not quite enough to knock out the Knights as Wartburg came back from an early 21-3 deficit to beat Wisconsin-Whitewater 31-28. Whitewater got on the board quickly when Tamir Thomas scored on the third play from scrimmage with a 69-yard touchdown reception. After a Wartburg field goal and a pair of punts, Thomas scored his second touchdown of the quarter to push Whitewater's lead to 14-3. On the ensuing kickoff, Nate Custer executed a perfectly placed onside kick recovered by the Warhawks. Whitewater, they did not score off of that bonus possession, but the field position advantage played a role when Ethan Gallagher intercepted Niall McLaughlin at the Wartburg 39-yard line. Whitewater scores four plays later to take that 21-3 lead, and honestly, they had all of the momentum in the game to that point. The one thing I can attest to from a coaching standpoint, there's no panic on that sideline. Certainly, they stunned us a little bit. And I would say we were on our heels, and there was a little bit like, oh, wow, what just happened there? But there was no panic. There was never anybody pointing any fingers, never anybody blaming anybody for anything. Everyone had each other's backs. And that, that's how you get back into that game right there. And, and that's where Wartburg's experience that we featured last week in a road to Salem piece really showed up. The Knights got two touchdown passes from McLaughlin, one to Hunter Clausen, as well as a sack and a forced fumble from Owen Grover. All of those guys are fifth-year seniors before halftime to trim that 21-3 deficit to 21-17. Wartburg then scores to open the second half, and they've completely turned the game on its head. Both defenses clamp down at that point until Whitewater finally breaks the stalemate with Tommy Coates' second touchdown catch of the game. That happens with 8 minutes and 11 seconds to play. The teams trade punts. Wartburg gets one more possession, down by four to try and get back to the semifinals. And here is how the final play of that drive sounded on the Night Vision broadcast. Second and goal, McLaughlin. Shotgun, butters in motion. Play action, McLaughlin rolling to his right, looking for someone to throw it back to Clawson. Gets a block, Clawson into the end zone. Touchdown, Knights. And they take the lead 
with under a minute to play. That score with 57 seconds left is the game winner, and Wartburg is on to the Final Four for the second consecutive year. Here's a little bit of what Hunter Clawson had to say about that last drive. When you have Nile back there as a quarterback and the receivers that we have, you know, Drake George, friggin' C. Henny, Thor Moxted, you know, and Butters, you know, making some amazing catches down that last drive, you know, all, all they need to do is just catch the ball. Nile's going to put it in a great spot. And, you know, with that screen, too, I knew we just needed the great, just needed, I just needed to catch the ball and I knew we were going to score. But uh, yeah, when Niles back there, I got all the confidence in the world with our line too and our receivers spreading their routes. So it was definitely one I'll remember for the rest of my life. It was awesome. Big win for Whitewater and a big win for a program that has had a couple of chances to get past Whitewater, but has been unable to do so. But Winter made a point of saying that the current group of players doesn't really have that history. I mean, they don't, they don't really know. That's why I've said all week. These guys, I mean, I guess these two were around one, the, the last time we played them in 2019, but they were first-year players and probably didn't have quite as big of a role on the team. And so, you know, a lot of our guys didn't even really, you know, Whitewater was another school, right? I mean, we knew they were good, and don't get me wrong. I'm not saying they're not, you know, multiple national champion. We know they're a power. Uh, but but it wasn't a demon to exercise for a lot of our players. But for me, I've been around here long enough, and uh, I felt great. You know, it felt great, I hope. You know, a lot of our alumni, and the, I know we had a lot of them out there in the crowd, and that, that was something that I told these guys was redemption for a lot of players in the past that have been through some heartbreakers against those guys to get that done that way. Wartburg with the 31-28 to win. They will host North Central in the national semifinals this upcoming Saturday after the Cardinals got past UW Lacrosse 55-42. North Central and UWL traded early touchdowns, but Lacrosse got a defensive stop and was driving with a first down at the Cardinals 22 in a 7-7 game. That is when Julian Bell answered with a stop of his own. Here's the call from the lacrosse broadcast. Kaiser awaits the snap, takes it. Handoff is to Lynch. Cut back move, middle of the field, into the 10-yard line. Five, bounces off the defender, pulls loose. Did they say touchdown? Uh, no, oh, my God, it's no. going to be a fumble through the back. And so it's going to be first and 10 for North Central at the 20-yard line. Coach Janis is going to light up this refereeing crew saying that's a touchdown. I wish we could have replay there. Replay was not going to help. The MIAC officiating crew called this one absolutely correct on the field in real time. Julian Bell punched that ball out just outside the goal line, and the ball did indeed go out the back of the end zone. Not only did lacrosse not score, North Central scored on the very next play as Joe Sacco shook off a tackle in the backfield and ran 80 yards for the go-ahead touchdown. And here's Julian Bell responding to my question about forcing the fumble at the goal line, and then you'll be able to hear my follow-up question and his response. Something our coaches preach is never giving up on a play and refusing to lose, and I felt like that was just an opportunity to not give up on a play and you know, give my teammates what they deserve, and that's ultimately my best. Um, so that's that's kind of what I did. Let me ask you, so that happens. And then on the very next play, right, Sacco goes 80 yards to the end zone. Um, something you kind of made happen, right? You, you made the quick change happen. That's where they, how does that feel for you specifically? Um, I think as a defense, we made it happen. Um, but, I mean, me and Luke were kind of talking before this. I didn't even know Sacco scored the 80-yard touchdown because we were making – you know, adjustments on the sideline with our defensive coordinator. So, you know, it's 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 really good to see, you know, um, not giving up on a play kind of pay off for our whole team. Pat, that was such a huge play early in this game. Lacrosse is on their way in to take a 14-7 to lead over North Central. Instead, there's no touchdown. North Central takes possession. And one play later, Sacco Houdini's his way out of two tackles in the backfield. And he's gone 80 yards for the score. Who knows where this game goes after that, right? North Central, they haven't had to chase down any kind of deficit this year, or at least not against the team of Wisconsin lacrosse's quality. That's such a massive play for the psychology of the game early, and ultimately, in a game decided by an onside kick recovery, it turns out to be one of the most important plays in the game. Luke Lane in the postgame, Greg, talked about making some mistakes on that second drive for North Central. That's the one where they ended up having to punt, the one where lacrosse was driving and could have taken the lead. But yeah, absolutely, getting a touchdown on what is essentially a broken play completely allows an offense to come out and settle down and do something different. And as far as the onside kick recovery, yeah, let's hear a little bit more about that from D'Angelo Hardy. He and I talked after the game. 
We're joined by D'Angelo Hardy, who did just about everything on Saturday as his team defeated UW Lacrosse 55 to 42. First off, congratulations, congratulations on getting back to the national semifinals. Thank you, I appreciate it. Yeah, you did. So, like we said, did a little bit of everything. Started by catching a touchdown pass, first touchdown of the game. You threw a touchdown pass. You, of course, intercepted a pass at the end of the first half, and then you take the onside kick and return it to the house to wrap that game up. There's a little bit of everything, obviously. How does that stack up? Uh, yeah, it's probably one of the most or happiest days or most eventful days in my there you football go. career. I like that, most eventful. I just, I'm just happy that my coaches put me in the position to make the plays, and, and I'm glad my teammates helped me out by blocking and Luke throwing me the ball. So just when the play's coming to me, I just make the opportunity, most of it. Putting a prime wide receiver out there on a jump ball at the end of a half or the end of a game is, you know, it's not anything new, right? This is something that's been done for a little while. How do you feel when you are getting the call to do that first off? When I know there's a, a the end of half, end of the game, um, I always go up to Coach Durking and ask him, like, freeze. And that's what we call okay. Hail Mary prevent. And he always said, yeah, stay by me. We ran a couple times during the year, but they always throw it short and they always expect something to happen. But uh, this time they actually threw it deep and I actually made the opportunity or had the opportunity to make a play. Um, yeah, just had the opportunity to make a play and saw the ball in the air and came down with it. And then at the end of the game, obviously, you're out there on the hands team, as you should be, right? A guy with hands, a wide receiver who can catch the ball. And then you just get the most convenient hop possible, and you're basically gone. Oh, yeah. So uh, our front line guys, Jetski, uh, Angelo, BJ, um, who else is on there? Uh, Danny Nuccio, they all had perfect blocks, pretty much laid their, all their dudes out and then had a free lane to catch the ball and take the opportunity to go to the end zone. and score one more time so it was a good opportunity I heard some get downs get downs but I couldn't <laughs> couldn't pass up that opportunity no understandable um, and I don't remember if it was if that was the touchdown that broke a record for you guys or if one of your earlier touchdowns on the day did but uh, uh, they mentioned in the post game that you broke the career touchdown record or the season touchdown record uh, uh, career career touchdown record for North Central held by Andrew Kaminsky obviously that's a guy you played with for a couple of years at the beginning of your career tell us a little bit about what that means uh, Andrew Kaminsky is my best friend, uh, he texted me today this morning, wishing me good luck, telling me uh, kick ass uh, so we can play another round together, or not round together, but so he can come see me for another round. But um, yeah, I, as soon as I got here, he took me under his wing. I was second day on campus. He told me to come hang out with him okay. to help me learn the playbook, stuff like that. So I give all my props pretty much to Andrew Kaminsky. Everything I learned is to Andrew Kaminsky. And, even though I'm coming up on his record or just broke his record, he always gives me props. And he always jokes around with me here and there, but he always gives me props and uh, just love the, love the guy and love to be around him. Right, and you were like in the starting lineup alongside him, basically, I assume your entire freshman year. Certainly by the time we got to see you in the postseason a little more closely, you, you know, I would think if people were going to assume that you were maybe by now 25 or 26 years old they could probably be excused for doing so because you've been you've been a name player for North Central for quite a time quite a long time now oh yeah uh, we were Bellhaven and a couple of their DBs are like aren't you 30 like why are you still out here <laughs> and then same thing with uh, Trinity they always come at my age and stuff like that but I'm only 23 years old I tell them I'm, I'm the same as y'all all you guys so <laughs> um all right, so you talked about Andrew Kaminsky, and I know he's not one of the uh, guys who's on the coaching staff, but there are so many North Central alums, whether they're 20 years out of school, like Coach Spencer, or some of the younger guys, you know, uh, who are coaching positions. Tell us what it's like to just have all of that kind of North Central history and tradition around you guys every day in the coaching staff. I would say it speaks volume on our culture, because. Uh, we all love each other around here. We all, between coaching staff, coaching staff to player, we all love each other and it shows volume how we keep hiring dudes that are alumni and they, they want to change our lives, not just in football, our lives in general. And that's what really uh, stuck out to me and that's why I really came here. That's why uh, when I came on my visit and everything, I saw a lot of North Central alums as coaches and I knew that's a special place to be. 
Tell me about some of the messages on your uh, uh, stretchy bands and your tape here. So on my right arm is all these tattoos are from my sister that passed away. And it says RIP my sister with a little heart. And then on my left arm is tattoos from my mom that passed away a couple years ago. And it says RIP mom. And that's who I do it for, my family, my mom, and my sister. You say that in a very, um, a very matter-of-fact way, but you know, obviously, emotionally, it's not doesn't always feel that way, right? Yeah, there, there's definitely times where I, there's times where I break down, but I always have my teammates to back me up. They always put a smile on my face. That's why I'm been here for all five years. Right, you guys are going to Wartburg next week, and I, there's been a lot of talk, obviously, about who should be hosting games and that sort of thing, right? Doesn't escape us, obviously. That you guys have won 28 games in a row defending national champs, ranked number one in both polls all year, et cetera, et cetera, going on the road. And I know that Coach talked about it in the postgame and a lot in the postgame last week about this, um, that I was wondering your thoughts about, you know, versus having a chance for your home fans to see you guys up and close, or you know, is it, there's also some, like, camaraderie going on the road, right? Um, we always say wherever, wherever the ball's put down, we're going to play. It doesn't matter if it's in the parking lot or some junkyard or the, some kind of field. We're always going to bring our best and play our best football and try to beat the team across from us. So it really doesn't matter where we play. Um, I know there's a lot of talk on Twitter and stuff like that, but... There is a little bit. Oh, yeah. But like Coach Spencer says, it doesn't matter where we play. We're, we're here to ball. And let me ask you about Luke. Obviously, now multiple years as starting quarterback, right? Third year as a starter. Uh, we've seen him progress quite a bit, but you have seen him up close and personal all of this time. Tell us a little bit about how his game's improved and your rapport as a quarterback and receiver and that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. That's one of my good friends. I live a couple doors down from him in our dorm room. He's just a terrific athlete, terrific player, terrific person. Uh, I couldn't say much more about him because you see him. He just makes plays with his legs makes plays with his arms, uh, it doesn't matter what situation it is, he's, he wants to win, as you see. Uh, third down, he's going to do whatever he can to get a first down. He came a long way from his freshman year to now uh, with passing, knowing defenses, all that stuff. He, he took real control of the offense and hasn't turned back. So, Right. Actually, it brings up a good point, right? He's a guy who's been running the ball a lot all season and you know a very strong running game overall obviously Joe Sacco in there as well uh, Charles Coleman we saw score two touchdowns on Saturday and I heard people talk about your blocking downfield as a wide receiver so you know just tell me a little bit I assume that's something it's not every wide receiver's favorite thing to do so you take pride in that oh yeah I take pride in because our coach duty our office coordinator always says if you if you block, you get the rock. So I really take pride in blocking. So that's probably why hopefully I get the ball so much. But yeah, it just helps put on film that we're physical and that we're gonna block for our teammates, that we love our teammates. And that we're, that's why we have these explosive plays because once the, our running backs get past the first line, then while if we're making our blocks, it makes it easier for them just to wiggle through their defense and make score those 60 yard touchdowns. So what are you listed at height weight wise? Uh, I'm at 6'1", 204. All right. So people coming to check you out, that sort of thing. I think that the reason I ask is that blocking downfield is one of the things I hear about what the next level wants to see in a wide receiver, in addition to all the traditional receiver stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, a lot of teams come and see me. They like the size. They say they like my knowledge of the game. So I just got to go with what's, what's been happening. and. Keep, keep pushing, hopefully finish out the season how we should, and hopefully good things happen. Right, at least one more game, maybe two. Mm -hmm. We skipped over a lot in this game, but kudos to lacrosse for rallying and cutting the lead to six twice in the fourth quarter, making that onside kick realistic. And a big day for Luke Lanen. I mean, he lost ground in this whole touchdown-to-incompletion ratio race. He threw three incomplete passes while only, only throwing two touchdowns. But in all seriousness, Cardinals look good even though Antoine Walker and Martin Egbo each left the game with injuries in the second half. Yeah, something to watch for on that North Central defense. They're really, really struggling through some injuries to some key players. We saw Antoine Walker go out last week against Trinity, came back in, played about a half, I believe, uh, this week at lacrosse. Martin Egbo went out late in the fourth quarter. I think he was off the field for the last drive or two uh, for Wisconsin lacrosse. So something to watch for. 
in the next round to see if those guys are able to go and at what what sort of what percentage they might be at next week at Wartburg. One other little aside from this game, Greg, too, there was a lot of concern about a person who was apparently caught shooting video of the North Central sidelines and their signal calling, their play calling, you know, University of Michigan style. I'm sure this has probably happened at the D3 level before, but I would say this kind of stuff is super magnified these days. I know North Central was pretty irate from everything that was witnessed. Yeah, I'm sure that this has happened. I'm, I'm aware of some incidents in the 90s around some games that I've <laughs> I've been. Oh, that's right. You definitely would be. Yeah, we didn't have phones in the 90s that recorded these kinds of things easily. But uh, we've seen even even at Stagwell practices, we've seen yeah. teams be you know pretty sensitive to who has access to the field during practice sessions and and things of that nature. And now with you know with the Michigan situation, this kind of scouting, if you want to call it that, uh, has a lot of attention and I think sensitivities uh, much more higher to it currently. Flipping around to the other side, this was the game that was catching the eye of a whole bunch of people outside of the Division Three football realm as well through its first 30 minutes. Yeah, we expected a lot of offense between Cortland and Alma, and boy, did we get it, Pat. Stops were at a premium in this game as the teams traded touchdowns on nearly every possession throughout the first half, leading to a 34-34 to tie after 30 minutes. Alma started the game on fire with Cortland leaving a lot of running room for Alma quarterback Carter St. John, which St. John was happy to take advantage of. He had four early rushes in the game for 59 yards and a touchdown. However, early in the second quarter, St. John got his ankle rolled up on and was much less than 100% for the rest of the game. In the second half, Cortland opened the scoring to take their first lead of the game at 41-34. to On the ensuing possession, Alma drives all the way to the Cortland two-yard line before Nick Ladaro chased down backup quarterback Trent Devereaux, forcing a fumble that the Red Dragons recovered. Cortland paid that turnover off by way of a 13-play, 87-yard drive capped by an Ashton Capone touchdown run. Capone also converted a key fourth and one at Cortland's own 47 to keep that drive going. That touchdown gives Cortland a 48-34 lead. That's the first two-possession lead by either team in the game. Alma scored on their next possession, but Corlin answered again with another very aggressive play, facing fourth and one at Alma's 45. Cortland lines up to go for it, but commits a false start. 99 times out of 100, fourth and six from the 50 and a seven-point lead is a punt situation, but this time Kurt Fitzpatrick is calling the shots, and he keeps his offense on the field. Zach Boyce hits Cole Burgess wide open for a 50-yard touchdown on fourth and six. Fitzpatrick in the postgame said punting is losing. And then here is what Zach Boys saw on that play. They came out in their one high, one high shell. They looked like they were bringing some pressure. Um, we just full started on a fourth and one. Um, so I just kind of, we, call, we called one of our man beaters and a cover three beater. Um, I really was just reading the corner. Um, we kind of ran like a smash concept over there to Cole, who was one of our fastest receivers. Um, and right when I saw the, the corner, uh, hook onto the hitch. I was like, well, that was a mistake. Um, so he was streaking wide open. I didn't want to, you know, throw a teardrop or anything. I just kind of wanted to put it on him, and and I knew he was going to be wide open. Um, so I think I don't know if there was a busting coverage, uh, but they definitely weren't on the same page. Yeah, I was going to say they were in the one high shell, but I wanted to go ahead and let Zach Boys explain <laughs> that for everybody. Yeah, yeah, we all know you're the defensive guy on this podcast. That's true. That score made it fifty-five to forty-one. And that was really the dagger in the game. Cortland, they go on to win 58 to 41, and they advance to their first ever semifinal. Big second half for Cortland, obviously. And as uh, Red Dragons defensive lineman Nick Lodaro puts it, it was from making the adjustments. You'll hear him and Kurt Fitzpatrick here in this clip. That was the point all week, you know, limit the long ball because they do that very well. They make, you know, drives last less than a minute. So that was the point of emphasis. And you know, we were definitely slow in the first half, but, you know, at halftime we had great adjustments and whatnot, and we definitely stopped in the second half and, you know, had a much better performance. Yeah, definitely, you know, we got – it's hard to simulate that tempo. Uh, it's hard to simulate the speed of, of number eight, um, Frenchko. Uh, and we gave up a big one early to him. We gave up a, a, a long one right before the half. Um, 
but we just need, needed to settle in and adjust. We're very young in the secondary. We dealt with a lot of injuries, a lot of injuries. We have freshmen playing out there that, um, if you asked me in August, I would have never thought they'd be out here at this at this point in the year. But here they are, and uh, it wasn't perfect, but you know you only got to win by one. And so I, you know defensively, I thought it, it would have been easy for us to sulk because we were giving up some big plays. Instead. We had a resiliency and a, and a next play mentality to just, okay, they scored 34 points in the first half. That doesn't mean they have to score 34 in the second half. Let's just regroup, make some adjustments, and and, and just, just play the best we can. Greg, I think it's time for you to pick up a beverage or a tasty snack, and we'll bring back an old friend of the podcast. Oh, yeah, this is going to be good. And I'm Keith McMillan. I'm a little rusty, but I think I still got it. I don't know if you can say I'm involved with the site this season. And I'm Keith McMillan. Maybe you should just take this out. It would be silly of us to talk about a game in which Randolph Macon wins a national quarterfinal, advances to the semifinal round for the first time ever, without talking to the OG co-host, the originator, as we say, of the Around the Nation column. So we bring in Keith McMillan. Keith, first off, I guess as an alum of Randolph making congrats to you. And uh, secondly, just tell us a little bit about sights and sounds of that game on Saturday. Well, I mean, the the, the first thought for me, thank you for, for the congrats. Of course, I didn't uh, have anything to do with it, but I was there and it was cool to, um, you know, to have it be your team for once or my team, I guess in this case. It's been fun to watch a lot of other teams have their day and it was yeah. cool. Uh, for it to be my alma mater for one. So I, I, I enjoyed that. You kind of famously now described to us uh, the previous week, this, that second round game against Ithaca, about Randolph making offensively, just kind of lining up and mauling people up front and then you know just being able to, to make some of the basic stuff, the basic X's and O's, trap plays, counters, et cetera, work. And what I want to know is you know, in this different scenario where Randolph making needs to go deeper into the playbook, obviously, I assume, to win the game, what did you see? Did you see anything different? What can you tell us? Yeah, I thought the early going, Johns Hopkins controlled the game. They had an 18-play drive, kicked a field goal, which was obviously a big, big stop for Macon and, and helped later in the game. But then Randolph Macon's first few offensive drives, I think, you know, they're trying to just line up and run inside zone and and some of their base run plays. And um, the, the yards were, were not there. And so I, I give them a lot of credit for kind of very early in the game Letting Drew Campanale throw the ball, um, they have great wide receiver and uh, and and they throw it in smart ways too. They'll they'll sneak. They have a tight end that's kind of like an H back. He'll, he'll kind of line up in the wing. You know, you'll you'll see him sl- slip out of the formation a couple times. That's how they got the two point play late in the game. So they throw to him. They're they're you know they're they're mixing it up, play action stuff. Uh, I think they just recognize very early on that okay, this isn't going to be one of those lineup and maul them games, and we're going to have to be smart. And they did that. And then once they they opened things up a little bit, they were able to hit a couple of long run plays. The backfield is is four backs deep, but it was the it was the guy who got the third most carries this year who had the big day uh, and hit a couple of big runs in uh, in Mitchell Johnson, including one run uh, right after Hopkins had brought it to fourteen nine, and uh, they they just. Make making just goes down the field in two plays, and and um, that was huge because they went into the half up twenty one nine, and it felt like Hopkins and and Macon had played kind of neck and neck in this first half, but Randolph Macon had this big lead, and they would need every bit of it because Hopkins uh, came out and, and took the lead in the third. I remember, in fact, uh, earlier in the game, you had said that not not even neck and neck that Johns Hopkins had basically outplayed Randolph Macon, but uh, the the Yellow Jackets were holding the lead. Maybe that was before halftime, but that's what I remember. Yeah, there was not only the 18 play drive, which felt like super successful drive, but but obviously they kick a field goal, and so you know for for that it's a it's a win. But then uh, Randolph Macon went for it on fourth and one from their 24, uh, from the 24 going in, and uh, and got stopped early in the game. So they they had a nice drive themselves, came came away with no points. They went for it on fourth uh, later in the game, also got stopped, and so there were definitely moments. Where, you know, if you're either a Johns Hopkins fan or you're, you know, someone that just want to see a great game, you're thinking, okay, uh, the Blue Jays are right here. You know, this is um, this this game is closer than the, than the scoreboard would suggest. And uh, and sure enough, you know, they um, ran off making 60 yard kickoff return to start the um, 
to start the third quarter. And then yeah. that's when they actually, that's when the, the second time they went for it on fourth down, didn't get it. And then Johns Hopkins drives down the field. Uh, I had a couple receivers, uh, re- actually tight end run it, running open down the middle of formation twice. Um, and even when Randolph Macon withstands all that, they take the lead uh, again at, at uh, 36, 29, you know, there, there was a feeling I felt uh, in the stadium that was seven and a half minutes left, plenty of time for Johns Hopkins to go down and score. Blue Jays did a great job of not only marching down the field, but milking as yeah. much clock as they they could uh, while also getting the the, the touchdown. Uh, the touchdown came on fourth and one, Bradley shove, first effort doesn't get right. There, and then right. Bay Harvey sticks it over, the, just sticks the ball over the goal line. And then they had a big situation, a big decision to make. Right. Interesting. Right. And they took the time out to do it in the grand scheme of things. It sort of doesn't matter. Because if Randolph Macon was going to come down and kick the field goal, they were going to win regardless of whether they score one or two. And I guess kicking and taking the one keeps you in the game, right? Yeah, I mean, Greg Chimera, I thought he explained it. And you and I have talked about two-point decisions a lot over the years. And I realize everyone listening today is not someone who listened to the majority of the 346 podcasts. Greg will say, give the people what they want. I hear that. But I, I think, uh, you know, we would always say, and 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 he was going by this same same thing as well. One, um, you know, do you feel like you're the you're the team that's uh, in control, or are you basically kind of lucky to be here, and um, maybe you know maybe the two point play is your best shot? And then, do you have a play you love? Yeah, do you have a play you feel like it's definitely going to this works every time, or we haven't shown this all year, but it works right. every time in practice. We got this. Then you go for it. Um, and Coach Chimera said he took the time out, think, thought about it, had a play that they installed the day before, which I think probably meant the last <laughs> practice. Wow. Not not in the walkthrough, right, but in their last actual pass. That, that would be my guess. He said he liked it, but he didn't love it. And I thought that, I, that just took took me back to all the times we we discussed, do you have a play you love? And do you feel like you'll win uh, in overtime? And he and. That's exactly what he said. He said, I felt like we'd win in overtime. Defense is going to get a stop. The score comes with uh, a minute 33 left. It's 36-35. So um, they run the kicking team out there. Then they take the timeout. Think it over. Talk it over. Chimera just came to the conclusion that um, take the points. We're going to get a stop and uh, take the point. Or we'll get a stop and then we'll go win this game in overtime. He felt like his team was outplaying Randolph Megan. And I think that um, almost worked. So they kick the PAT, Macon gets in a third and nine, and uh, yeah. just, just has this tremendous completion from uh, Campanale to David Wallace. And then after that, they just rolled down the field and set it up to win. Right. It really did seem like Randolph Macon was content to go to overtime tied before that third and nine play connected. Chimera talked about this in the post game too, where he said, if you go for two and get it, the other team is, is pressing. They're going to press to score to try to win it because they're down one. Right. They don't have they don't have the option to just kneel it out and go to overtime. He thought maybe by taking the point, making if they got in a situation like that, third and nine or what or whatever, that they'll just kneel it out and go to overtime. What happened was that third and nine happened so fast, they had an incomplete pass, and then Hopkins took they had Hopkins had two timeouts left, so they took one of them. It happened so fast, there's only like there's still like a minute twenty or a minute right. And yeah. so now Randolph Megan has to get this first down on third and nine, uh, or they're going to punt back to Hopkins with a minute, 55 seconds, whatever, and a timeout. Yeah. Um, so it, it, they end up putting themselves in danger. They get the third and nine, then they uh, hit a couple plays. And then I thought was really peculiar. Um, maybe peculiar is not the right word, but it's unusual is, is really what I'm trying to say. Um, they ran off Megan, gets a first down. Um, I think it was a Campanale scramble slides and then they uh, spike it to stop the clock. The clock stopped. Macon is out of timeouts. They had the clock it. And you figure when they clock it, the clock stopped. That's a good time to bring the field goal team out there. Right. That's what you do. That's how it works. Right. Right. Set it, you know, take it from a dead snap, kick the field goal in the calmest, whatever way possible. Um, now, maybe there's some coaching logic there, like you don't want the defense to to have its block team set up. Uh, you don't want the k- kicker to think about it a whole lot. But what, what Megan did was essentially hand it off to a running back, about 30 seconds at this point. So they hand it off uh, to center it, so, to where the kicker likes it. But the yeah. clock's running. So yeah. they purposely r- did it. They did the running, the run the field goal team on the field. And with 30 seconds, it is plenty of time. Uh, the kicker, Kyle Ely, talked about they practiced that situation every Thursday. 
uh, and they do it with 10 seconds. So obviously 30 when the, when the, the handoff happens, uh, it's plenty of time to run out there. Um, so they run it out there and the, the kick goes through with four seconds left. There's no doubt about it from 34 yards out. Uh, it was good. And Randolph Macon wins the biggest game in its football history. Thank you for defusing my follow-up question, which, which was to give me a P101 on Kyle Ely. Pronunciation 101. Bunavistic. Monon Bell. Bunavistic. Gallardi. Muhlenberg. Worcester. Kyle Ely. I'm with Nick Hale, Mitchell Johnson. Obviously, huge day for you, Mitchell. Obviously, Nick gets a lot of the, the carries uh, and imagine the attention. So I'm flipping through the stats. I'm like, how many carries does, does, does Mitchell have? So you're the third leading ball carrier on the year and I know you guys go four deep in that backfield uh tell me what it's what it's like some days you get five carries for four yards and then some days you have a day like that today I mean that's the whole part of Randolph making football I mean we have four amazing guys I mean I love being able to you know share reps with them I mean it's just we're able to stay fresh we're able to put somebody in we're able to trust and rely that they're gonna uh put out when they do go out there um you know I I think I think it's great. Not many programs have, uh, you know, have that opportunity to be able to have, you know, four backs that they can trust and that are close and have built a relationship. Um, so I think, so I mean, I, I really don't know how else to explain it other than like I, I wouldn't rather be anywhere else. I mean, this is awesome. I think it's, uh, I think we definitely have an advantage with uh, a four back set like we do. What do you think about it, Nick? Yeah, I mean, I got, I just got so much love for, for, for these guys, and uh, I mean, Quasi and Cam, Mitch. I mean, Mitch had a heck of a day today. I mean, it was, it was awesome. He had a hot hand, so we went with him, and it, it, it worked. Um, so I mean, we, we don't look too much into that, like who's getting the reps, who's because, like, like I said before, like we just have so much love for each other. Um, Coming coming uh, off the field, uh, I think uh, one of the parents said the four horsemen, and uh, that that kind of that kind of hit home with me. Um, and let's let's run with that and go go uh, keep keep adding on to the uh, to the year. Yeah, I, I imagine um, you know at some some point in the game, you know uh, the deeper you get in the playoffs, it, it's it's just like this, right? The, the defenses are tougher, the yards are harder to come by, and you guys haven't had a whole heck of a lot of close games this year. So, uh, you know, at what point in the game are you realizing, um, oh, wow, this, this might be a little, little tougher than it. We might have to dig a little deeper than we normally have to dig. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the game of football. I mean, it's, you, 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 all, every, every game you're going to go in and you're going to want to de- demolish your opponent. But, uh, I mean, just how football is, you like, you got, especially like today, we have a lot of respect for, for Hopkins um, and that program. And uh, we, we knew they were a good, great football team. And uh, we just, we knew it was going to be a battle. We knew it was going to come down to the fourth quarter and sure enough it did. And uh, just, just glad we, we pulled through and, and won it in, in the end. Yeah. It felt to me like the classic last team that has the ball mm-hmm. uh, game and even seemed like um, when you got the ball back about a minute and a half left, um, getting to this third down situation, we're like, man, if we don't get a first down here, we might have to punt mm-hmm. and go back on defense. Uh, what take me through your emotions? You see Wallace make the catch, uh, and then all of a sudden you're like, okay, now we got a chance. Um, I, uh, I, I was honestly ecstatic that we had the ball with a minute and thirty seconds left. For us, that's a lot. Um, I mean, I, we have a lot of faith in our offense, yeah. and uh, I mean, when it came down to that third down play, we just we all just kept hope. I mean, we knew we knew coach was going to make a good play call, and we knew that the players were going to. Uh, you know, put out. I mean, obviously the nerves were up there. Yeah. You know, uh, and getting getting anxious, right? Um, but when uh, when David made that play, or when Drew made that throw, and we just we kept moving it down the field, that was that was surreal. I mean, it there's really no other way to explain it. I mean, I'm just happy that we were able to, you know, perform and uh, make the plays at the end that we needed to make. Those those definitely made or break the game. So I'm going to ask you guys to, to take the, the podcast listeners uh, inside the player's head for, uh, for a little bit. Uh, what are you thinking when you see the, the, the kick? Ely, you know, it's like 40 yards, pretty, mm-hmm. pretty significant kick, and you see it uh, right down the sail, right down the middle. Take me through your emotions right before the kick as it goes through and then afterward. Yeah, I mean, first, want to shout out to to Kyle, and that was a great, great kick, uh, clutch kick for sure. Um, for me, I mean – Honestly, in this moment right now, like it still doesn't feel real. It still doesn't feel like um, we're in the final four teams in in America right now. Um, 
But when, when I saw that kick and I saw that ball go through the upright, I was like, wow, like this, this, like we're moving on to the final four and in, in, in this uh, championship right now. So, I mean, so surreal, um, once in a lifetime experience. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, just excited. <laughs> yeah, you, you wish everyone um, could go through it. Um, you know, I've seen, I've traveled enough over the years to see, you know, the Mount Union folks and North Central and Mary Harden Baylor and Whitewater get to do it over and over again. Yep. So it's pretty cool when it when a new school and an alum of, of a new school gets to watch uh, watch uh, the team break through. Mitch, I want to ask you um, put us put us in your head. Um, you know, you had a 59 yard touchdown run. The other one, you know, 40 something. I don't know what it was, but it seemed like you broke a tackle uh, at the line of scrimmage, and then maybe you see daylight. Take it to what's your emotions when again you, you kind of look up and you're like, Oh man, I might take this to the house. Oh, uh, I mean, there's no better feeling than, than seeing your line do what they got to do. I mean, I, I'm giving all full credit to the linemen, that was all them. And then when I saw green grass, it was just get on your horse and go. I mean, I, I knew it was big for the team, I knew that, um, you know, we really needed to get up, and I know that, you know, we we need every yard, every touchdown that we could get, and uh, it was it was more like. It was super, you know, I was super ecstatic to see that green grass. Also, a little nervous about, about you know, who's coming from behind. But um, definitely never want to get caught in the open. Field. Oh, absolutely not. You'll never hear the end. Of <laughs> no, sir. But uh, yeah, no, it was it was awesome, awesome. Uh, I'll tell you another thing that that seemed uh, awesome was um, you know you, you guys get to play a home at home next week, but it felt at sometimes uh, like a home game this week because uh, Hopkins and Randolph Macon are so close. You know, for the listeners. From the Midwest, these these schools are about two and a half hours apart. Uh, you know, huge crowd here from Macon. Uh, what was that like to play a, a road game, but also ha- have that home game feel sometimes? I I mean, for me personally, I think having a crowd, you know, show out for you really shows the love, you know, for the people have for the program and for the team. And I think, you know, I think the crowd and the love that they have for us, you know, really really does help us perform you know, to a certain degree, you know, just, just knowing we have all those people behind us is like, when we see those people cheering for us, we see the crowd and, you know, family members, friends, um, you know, we're not just playing for, you know, yourself, you're playing for your teammates, you're playing for, you know, the community and the people in the stands that came to support you guys. So, um, you know, I, for me, I think, I think it's, I think it makes a world of a difference having people show out like that. And I think it's awesome. Yeah. I, I, I have to agree with that. I mean, after the game, we had so many alums come up that we've, we've played with here uh, for the past few years um, and even before then. Um, and just um, seeing how those guys are as excited as we are or most of the time even more excited than we are um, to, to have that um, on our side and uh, all the family members, all the just all, everybody come out and, uh, and just the noise like – Momentum's real, and uh, a crowd like we had today has definitely uh, played a factor. Well, this game was obviously a co-headliner with Wartburg and Whitewater also coming down to the last minute of the game. I know, Pat, we have fun with aggressive two-point play calls, but I think Greg Chimera's explanation for not going for two there makes a lot of sense. He didn't love the call, felt great about his guys in overtime, and not putting Randolph Macon in a deficit increases the chances that they might also just run out the clock and go to overtime, which is where he wanted that game to go. It didn't play out that way, but the logic makes sense to me. In the end, we got an incredible finish to what was a fantastic game between two excellent and evenly matched teams. One of the games of the week, for sure. Absolutely. I'm going to ask the question that other people have been asking, and we've just kind of been silently moving away from that end zone shot doesn't really make it look like that field goal is good. But then I will say, you know, the you're looking at that against the backdrop of the lacrosse building, which is way set back beyond the end zone. That's a really compressed shot. But I was wondering how you felt about that after looking at it. I, I don't know that it matched up with Keith's description of straight down the middle. Right. Um, but uh, I believe we had uh, Frank Rossi was there as well. And I think we have multiple accounts that uh, say that was just inside the upright. So. Three points, good for Randolph Macon. Uh, no controversy here from me. That's not my stat. Also, not going to be my stat. Not my stat. 
But that may be the most incredible stat. Time for stat of the week. And my stat of the week is really a stat of two weeks. It's about performance against the Alma defense, where Mount Union in round two had a number of yards, but had just 20 points on seven trips to the red zone in their 24-20 to 20 loss to the Scots. That includes a drive where Mount Union got into the red zone, but was knocked back out by a holding call, settled for a field goal. Meanwhile, Cortland did not fail in the Alma red zone. They only punted once all day. Red Dragons were 9 of 9 in red zone opportunities en route to their 58 points, and they won by 17 on Saturday. What a difference a week makes, Greg. Braxton Plunk was sacked three times, while Zach Boys was sacked just once. Cortland averaged 8.4 yards per snap, while Mount Union managed just 4.8. Tough comparisons for the men in purple. Absolutely. I don't know if those 99 snaps from the week before had anything to do with some of that, obviously, most of that due to Cortland just being very skilled and excellent on offense. Pat, my stat of the week has to do with the fresh coat of paint on this year's Final Four. Purple has been a dominant presence in the national semifinals, so much so that the phrase Purple Powers entered the D3 lexicon decades ago. And even the most casual Division Three fans know which teams are in that particular club. But this year... None of the final four teams feature purple in their color scheme. And when was the last time that that happened? It's been a while. Mount Union is typically your resident semifinalist, but in 2019, the Purple Raiders did not make the semifinals. But Wisconsin Whitewater held it down for the Purples, making it all the way to the Stag Bowl. Then you have to go way back to find a time that Mount Union was not in the final four. And I know the fans are out there screaming 1994. And we know, of course, Mount Union did not make the semifinals in 1994. But we do know that Albion did. And the Britain's purple color scheme won a national championship that year. You have to run it all the way back to 1991 before the Salem Stag Bowls even. With the final four of Ithaca. Dayton, Susquehanna, and St. John's to find the semifinal round that was without the color purple. And that is my stat of the week. Nice catch, Greg. Lots of talk about this, of course, shaping up to be the first stag bowl without purple since 1999. But taking it one step further, that's the stat. Right here, right now, it might be time for the mailbag. Your categories have become tiresome. You've got mail. Tiresome. There's no other place I want to be. We go to the mailbag, and this comes from Matt Townsley at MC Townsley, T-O-W-N-S-L-E-Y, asking, what must each of the remaining four defenses do to maximize their team's chances of winning next Saturday? Love it. Great question. This allows us, of course, to talk about those semifinal games as well. I mean, obviously, one of the really high-level answers to this question is make the other team one-dimensional, right? I think if you are talking about North Central against Wartburg, this is going to be to try to shut down slash contain Hunter Clawson, force Niall McLaughlin to throw. Niall McLaughlin is an underrated passer. Issue one. He's got a number of pretty good wide receivers, maybe not an All-American receiver on that core. If it were me, and I'm not a defensive coordinator, I am an outfielder's coach. But if, if I were a defensive coordinator, that's probably where I would start if you're Ding up against Wartburg. Yeah, Niall McLaughlin is uh, probably underrated. He's starting to break some Matt Sasha records at Wartburg, which is kind of a big deal when you're talking about all-time passing records at Wartburg. Um, yeah, so you're trying. That's a good, good look at uh, what you want to do to stop North or stop Wartburg. Uh, on the other side of that, Pat, I think Wartburg has got to find a way to make North Central punt more than three times. <laughs> True. Yep. You watch that game and Wisconsin lacrosse is in it and they got some stops along the way, but they forced three punts in that game. And, you know, if you have a game where North Central has 10 possessions and they score and you have them punt three times, they scored seven other touchdowns or in this case, eight touchdowns. You really have to just figure out how to get them to punt more than three times, because if they get 10 or 12 possessions, they are going to score seven or eight or nine touchdowns and there aren't a lot of teams that have enough offense to keep pace. Wisconsin lacrosse almost did almost, but not quite. 
Yeah, so this is maybe a situation where you have someone spy lane, and I think that's the first thing you do. If that's Owen Grover's job, that's a really interesting matchup that's going to be a lot of fun to watch. That inside linebacker presence, that fifth-year guy for Wartburg against a very experienced playoff quarterback who is, as we heard D'Angelo Hardy talk about a little bit earlier, has really, really grown as a passer over the course of the past couple of years. You can't just do that. I mean, you have to do that and lock down D'Angelo Hardy, which is, you know, the guy who may be the D3 receiver of the year. So that's no uh, that's no small challenge. Obviously, of course, you know, you, just defensively, you can't make mistakes, right? You got you to gotta wrap up when you tackle. It was not just the play that we talked about, the Sacco play, where he could have been dropped for a loss of three and turned it into a positive 80 and a touchdown. There were numerous other times where North Central backs and receivers and Lanin, for that matter, broke plays for medium to big gains that could have been very short plays. So sure-handed tackling, obviously a big deal when you're going up against anybody good, and that is certainly true against North Central. If I think about what we are talking about against Cortland, I think a lot of the same things apply, right? It's a pretty dynamic offense. They have an amazing running back. They've got a great mobile quarterback, a deep threat at receiver. Cortland is not quite the equivalent of North Central offensively, but the weapons are pretty similar. They are, and maybe a little more balanced than you think from Cortland. Uh, Zach Boyce threw for 400 yards and five touchdowns this week, but Jaden Alfano St. John also ran for almost 200 yards yeah. in the same game. Yeah, uh, and and they will they will feed him the ball if he's hot if he's getting if he's picking up the yards with consistently he'll get 25 to 30 carries in a game and that's a that's a workload he can handle he's done it several times throughout his Cortland career so yeah defending Cortland is obviously very difficult I think if you're Randolph making this week you want to really see what happened in the Grove City game I think that's about as good a game plan as you can have against Cortland I think a really big factor when you play Cortland is to get Zach boys out of the pocket when he doesn't want to be sometimes he wants to be and then that's that's trouble for you but when you get Zach boys in some trouble he'll take some chances with the football we've seen him uh, take some chances throw into some coverage uh, maybe do some interesting things with the ball behind the line of scrimmage sometimes they pay off sometimes they don't Um, but if you can get if you can get Zach boys to you know throw up some some 50-50 balls and force a turnover here and there. That's that's about as good as you can do against this Cortland offense when they're really going. On the other side, and we talked with Keith a little bit about you know what Randolph Macon looks like offensively right now. That's a lot of running backs to contend with. They can bring fresh guys. They can change looks. They can change pace. They can put more than one of those guys out on the field at the same time. I think we saw in key situations too, Greg, where – you know, Campanelli had to maybe not quite win the game with his arm, but he had to keep drives alive, key drives. You know, for example, a last-minute scoring drive in the fourth quarter with no timeouts. Had to keep that alive with a couple of key plays with his arm. You can D up and stop them, right? But you've got to account for all of those running backs and then, you know, force them to go to the air. And by the way, Campanelli can also run the ball as well. He certainly can. I think one thing that Cortland's defense has been good at throughout uh, this playoff run specifically is uh, they have really managed to come up with forcing turnovers at really key moments in games. They had a key turnover against Grove City right after Zach Boys made one of those plays that you, that he probably wishes he had back. Yeah, they came up with a key turnover in the Alma game that stopped a, an Alma score from from tying there in the third quarter. Uh, came up with that forced fumble at the two yard line. So. You know, that's the thing. Cortland's just got to be relentless. Stay on target. Stay on target. We're too close. Stay on target. Randolph Macon is probably going to get some big runs, and they're probably going to lean on him pretty good. But uh, if they can get into some third and longs and force Drew Campanelli to throw, that's when they've got an opportunity to, you know, get a sack fumble, get the ball in the air, and and possibly get an interception. And I think that's uh, the kind of thing that Cortland is going to, need to do this week to steal a possession or two away. I think another thing they could do to do that, we didn't really talk about special teams. That wasn't really part of the question, but Cortland has been for 
several years now a really elite kick blocking unit, whether that is punt block or field goal slash PAT block. That's another place where Cortland really excels and perhaps has an opportunity to make some game-changing plays. Thanks for the question, Matt. Really appreciate that. Of course, you can send us questions for this podcast by doing the thing we just talked about. Hit us up on X or whatever you want to call the platform in any given day. One big coaching change of note since we last met Greg, where Union's coach is going back to the Ivy League from whence he came. He was a Ivy League assistant, came in, coached Union to the playoffs, to a 10-win season, to a second-round loss at Johns Hopkins, and then is going to go back and be the head coach at Columbia. A great opportunity for John Poppy. I think Union would like to have John Poppy for more than one year, but Division One football economics, as they are, even in the Ivy League, uh, make that uh, a pretty tough opportunity to turn down for John Poppy, but Union bounced back, got the Garnet Chargers back into the playoffs, into the second round, and a lot of a lot of good a lot of good momentum and a good foundation there at Union right now for whoever uh, they find to step in in 2024. Whoever that is will be their third head coach in three seasons. I think the moment I get this podcast out the door, I'm diving right back into the process of compiling up all the voting for our all-region teams and releasing those. I can't imagine being able to release them before Wednesday. It is Wednesday, my dudes. So look for those on d3football.com on Wednesday. And Greg, I don't think we have mentioned this on the podcast, so maybe this is an opportunity to talk about it right now. The six players who are our regional defensive players of the year, region one through region six, they will also be the finalists for the Cliff Harris Award. Cliff Harris Award has been in the recent past awarded to the top small college defensive player of the year. Has not typically gone to a D3 player this year. They are expanding it to make sure that they recognize someone in D2, someone in D3, someone in the NAIA. And they came to us to be the people who will put together that list of six finalists. And then we will get to announce who the Cliff Harris Award winner is at the end of the season in Salem. Exciting news for D3Football.com and the Cliff Harris Award. Really excited to be associated with that award and spotlighting the Defensive Player of the Year in Division Three. Yeah, so we're looking forward to that and lots of other stuff coming up over the course of the next week. Look for feature stories on the website this week. We'll be talking with all four teams. To give you a little teaser on storylines right now, North Central is a program that has really thrived on its alumni in the coaching ranks, alumni in their coaching ranks, not just Brad Spencer, who, of course, graduated from North Central nigh on 20 years ago. Both coordinators, a bunch of position coaches, and Joe Sager will have a feature story about that. We'll be checking in with a player profile from Wartburg. Uh, you can understand why. Wartburg confirms that Hunter Clausen does indeed have a nickname of Turbo, but maybe not used nearly as much as ESPN made it sound like a year ago. We're going to talk with Hunter Clausen about that and other things. Riley Zayas, looking forward to his story there. We'll be talking with Randolph Bacon. Greg, tell us a little bit about Randolph Macon. I want to talk to Randolph Macon ahead of uh, Randolph Macon hosting their first semifinal, being in the semifinal for the first time. So a lot of excitement around the program and on campus. We're going to talk to Randolph Macon about uh, semifinal week preparations. And Brian Lester will be talking to Cortland as well. We haven't firmed up that storyline yet, so I don't have a, a better teaser for you, but... Keep an eye out for all of that on the website this week. An in-depth analysis of punting. The man punted back, sir! Ah! Someone punted him? All right, Greg, I know my picks weren't the best. My picks haven't been the best this whole playoff. What you got? The points don't matter. That's right, the points don't matter. It's called being a professional. Points don't matter. You play to win the game. And then I give them points. I don't know why. It's just a gag to tie the show together. Now, if you want to crown them, then crown their ass. This week, all of our panelists correctly picked North Central to win. 
The panel was five to two in favor of Wartburg, where Pat and Keith missed by picking the Warhawks to win. We all missed on Cortland advancing past Alma. And the panel was again five to two on the Randolph Macon versus Johns Hopkins game. This time it was Ryan Tips and Riley Zayas just on the wrong side of that epic game. Overall, Pat. Frank Rossi continues to lead the quick hits pack with 26 correct picks so far in this tournament. Logan Hansen, he is one game behind with 25. Keith, Ryan, and myself are all at 23 correct picks. Pat, you have 22. And Riley Zay is taking some taking some chances in this bracket. He's got 21 correct picks. I was so tempted when I saw what the outcome was on Friday before we published it. I thought there is no reason. For everybody to have picked Alma to beat Cortland, I just didn't think that was realistic. But, you know, the rules of the game are that you can't change your pick once you've seen anybody else's selections. So I had to stick with that, but I was I was, I was, was tempted. I was sorely tempted. I believe your admin privileges do give you the ability to change your pick after you've seen everybody else's picks. I mean, I definitely can, but the question is whether I should. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 347, released on December 4th, 2023. Thanks for listening and keep an eye out for our continuing coverage all postseason. We are very thankful to everybody who listened to two podcasts from us last week, especially that second one. Thank you for listening. That was uh, that got basically as many numbers as Monday's podcast did, and that made me very happy. We're very thankful for the support of our monthly Patreon subscribers. You can join them or learn more about the program by visiting patreon.com slash d3sports. If you can't afford to support us financially, you can help us out by telling a friend, tell a classmate, tell a fellow alum about the show. Give us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. We are told that that is still a thing that triggers an algorithm to put the thing in more of your things. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using that D3FB hashtag. I post from at D3Football. Greg is at Wally Boabash. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. D3Boards.com, 97.3% uptime this past week. The executive producer of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is Patrick Coleman. It's written by Patrick Coleman and Greg Thomas. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh and Damara O'Malley. Additional audio this week from Keith McMillan. You remember Keith McMillan, the OG host, the originator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com. Our theme music is Power 2 by DJ Mentos. We use more of his tracks as well, and you can find them at DJMentos.com as well as on Spotify. And that just leaves Greg. Greg not only columnist, but co-host of the show. I mentioned in the Keith section of the podcast that he had done about the first 280 podcasts or so. And Keith said, wow, that's great. Greg has done 67 podcasts. 280 episodes. Some of them recorded in various strange ways we've talked about in previous podcasts. Uh, all manner of crazy weird technology and places to make around the nation happen over the years my favorite slash least favorite podcast was the one that i recorded in the back seat of the car as ryan coleman of d3 photography drove us back from iowa to minnesota we don't need a map to keep the show on the road that is not one i'm ever going to go back and listen to the audio on that has to be terrible but i would say this man if i had the editing software that we had now when Keith was doing the podcast, oh, it would be so tight. I'd be editing all of those little things out. And like every time where, you know, Keith turned back and did a whole other two and a half minute aside on something that wasn't quite related. Keith, I assume you're still listening. Tell him I can hear this. All the good stuff happens after the credits roll. And Pat, don't edit out a whole bunch so that you can be right. <laughs> <laughs>